0: welcome to the air medical today podcast my name is edward ero and i am your host for episode 40 on july 2nd 2021 this podcast is part of the ero podcast network podcasts that inform by focusing on both the news and the people behind the news. With each episode of Air Medical Today, we explore a specific area of the air medical industry and community through the use of interviews. You can find Air Medical Today on the web at airmedtoday.com and on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. The audio podcast is indexed on iTunes, and the video portion is on YouTube. For additional information about the guests on the podcast, I also provide background data on the Air Medical Today website. If you would like to become a sponsor or leave feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 367-6052. Today, I am interviewing Ms. Eileen Frazier, the Executive Director of the Commission on the Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems. Before we get to the interview, I want to go over some feedback from previous episodes and provide some general updates. As I have announced several times before now, Air Medical Today is also a video podcast. As always, you can listen to the podcast and now watch it on the new AIR Medical Today YouTube channel. The link to the channel is on the AIR Medical Today website. I mentioned during the last episode that AIR Medical Today was back on Pinterest. Well, Pinterest is not allowing more than five posts per day for news and information. And this is not enough uh, for for, uh, us to provide the coverage that is needed for the AIR Medical community and COVID-19. If they change this limit, we will start posting again. You can still follow news and information on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Instagram. If you have not listened to past podcasts, please take the time to do so. There's a wealth of information from some of the key leaders in the air medical and EMS transport. Please tune in to these informative and timeless podcasts. I would also like to thank the followers of Air Medical Today on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram. To date, Air Medical Today has 29,638 likes or followers, and it is increasing every day. Thank you so much. It is my pleasure to welcome Eileen Frazier, the Executive Director of the Commission on the Accreditation of Medical Transport Systems, or CAMES. Ms. Frazier has a wealth of experience in the air medical transport, including being the chief flight nurse at University Medivac at the Lehigh Valley Hospital in Allentown, Pennsylvania, and serving on a number of boards and committees. She has written several articles and is now writing a new book with the working title of Helicopters and Medicine. Eileen was the recipient of the Jim Charlson Award given to those that make significant contributions to the air medical safety, And in 1991, the Marriott Carlson Award, given for Outstanding Contributions to the Air Medical Transport Community. That was done in 2000. Both of the awards are sponsored by the Association of Air Medical Services. Welcome to the podcast, Eileen. It's uh, really great uh, to have you on.
1: Well, good morning, and thank you for the invite. This will be very interesting. I've not done a podcast before.
0: Oh, is that right? I I thought for sure with all your experience that you have, and uh, it's been uh, quite an ordeal to get this thing off the ground with uh, (laughs) the heat wave that you've been having out in the Northwest. You said it's a little cooler today? Yeah,
1: it's wonderful. That's
0: nice. And uh, I want to thank Rick too, uh, because I know we had issues with trying to record uh, at your house with the internet speed, and then your internet was down, too, for a while. Oh, yes. so, <laughs> um, so we're actually at the uh, Friday Harbor Airport uh, in Friday Harbor, Washington, out in San Juan Islands. So uh, we appreciate uh, Rick uh, uh, setting you up there. So um, as I always do on the podcast, I, I like to provide our listeners with some information about your background uh, and experience um, and I've known you for years, and uh, I did not realize all that uh, you've done and accomplished over the years. It's just, that's why I love doing these, because I always learn so much about people. Uh, and you've done quite a bit. Um, but let's, let's start from when you uh, started out as a staff nurse. Um, I believe it was the emergency department at the Allentown Hospital, and uh, later the Lehigh Valley uh, hospital after graduating from um, school of nursing in 67. Has emergency medicine always been something that you aspired to?
1: Actually, I wanted when I graduated, I wanted to be uh, on ICU rather than the ER. That was my think, second choice. But yeah. there weren't any positions available. So I got the ER and I was always so glad I did because I love it. I still yeah. love it that's my most fond memories actually
0: really yeah Mm -hmm. so what uh and you worked uh, at two different hospitals then right
1: yeah what they did was they took the city hospital which is where i graduated from and that was like my home because i worked there from the time i was 16 as a junior nurse's aide.
0: oh okay so you had some scholarship
1: with with the hospital program wow and then then they made a level one trauma center and a huge it's now sprawling uh huge center for cardiac and trauma and they did that uh in about 1971 that was built
0: i see so are you from that area
1: yes born yeah. and raised whole family has been there for since the 1700s <laughs>
0: oh my gosh yeah from uh, england or uh,
1: my dad's side from england my mom's side from germany
0: germany yeah okay mm-hmm. it sounds uh like my background, I don't know if you've done that, uh, you know, 23 and me and all those we things. Did. And, uh, yeah. Yeah, it's kind of, yeah. English German. I think I have some French in there too. So, <laughs> uh, and we, my family settled on the other side of Pennsylvania in, uh, Newcastle, uh, which is North of, uh, Pittsburgh there. Yeah. Uh, I don't
1: so. think you come from Pennsylvania without having some sort of German, you know, background there. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So, um, uh, in eighty one, you became the head nurse at the emergency department, and as you said, the trauma center uh, starting had. You always been attracted on going into a leadership role, or does that? I,
1: I was. Um, I I was taking courses at Cedar Crest College for uh, my BSN, which that was pretty new. Uh, yes. it was a new uh, graduate degree, and so I was taking courses and just working part time nights because. After five years, I finally had a baby and my daughter, and I didn't want to leave my daughter uh, alone, so I worked part-time nights for a while.
0: I see. Um, the, um, then in 82, uh, I think from reading, I just wanted to get it clear, is that when Le- Lehigh Valley started the flight program? In, in no, 82? they
1: actually started it in 81,
0: 81. So you weren't involved right from the very beginning. I was. I was.
1: Because as the head nurse in the trauma center, I was real close with the trauma people. And we started training and we did ATLS courses. We did intubations in the OR. We did all the medical training necessary. We just forgot about working around an aircraft and didn't have that training. <laughs>
0: yeah. So you were involved and then became the chief flight nurse then of the program.
1: Yes. The the nurse that uh, had a teaching degree was actually helping with all the training. And she said to me one day, well, don't you, I don't like, I'm not going to be in a helicopter. I don't like it. <laughs> Why don't we switch roles and I'll be the head nurse in the ER and you be the oh, okay. flight nurse. So that's and why the dates were... Can yeah. you imagine <laughs> even that happening today? Yeah. So we went to the, the head of nursing and she said, oh, okay, yeah, uh, just switch. So I became a chief flight nurse, which had no job description, nothing. I just started from there.
0: Yeah. And that, that was one of the early programs too, right? I mean, yeah. Uh, we,
1: I think we were the 13th in the country.
0: Yeah. In the mm-hmm. early eighties. So that's great. And you served uh, in that role until 19... 19- 90. Um, right. And uh, it's so I've already learned two other things. So emergency medicine was your second choice. And then you flipped jobs to get the chief flight <laughs> nurse. And that has defined your career. <laughs> that's, that's wonderful. It's
1: crazy. So, yeah.
0: Um, uh, so tell us about some things uh, with the startup of the program and through 1990, what are the types of things you were dealing with?
1: Well, uh, as I said, we were well prepared. If you read the part about my first flight, I've written this and published it a couple different places. Just to get get the point across to nurses today that what we missed was any kind of training around aviation. My first flight was at midnight and uh, they announced that day they were going to start helicopter transport. And we got a call and it was, A trauma patient in a hospital about 60 miles away. And we um, were waiting for the helicopter to land because it was coming up from Westchester, Philadelphia. We still didn't have a contract with the helicopter service. And it was Keystone Helicopters. Yes, I was going to
0: say. yeah.
1: Mm -hmm. And so when we got, uh, I was a little nervous. And I said to the resident, you know, I don't think I've ever been near a helicopter. Oh, he said, don't worry about it. It's I was in Vietnam. I know all about it. Well, he didn't know about this particular helicopter. It was a BL 105 And so the pilot landed, got out and helped us get in, showed us where to sit, so showed us how to fasten seat belts, showed us how to talk on the headsets, which of course, I didn't have any of that knowledge. And on the way, I noticed that the lights in the cockpit went out and he had a flashlight. In his mouth, and that's how he was seeing what the light, what the cockpit was telling him. And I thought, what? That doesn't seem right. I don't know. Uh, uh, (laughs) And when we got to the hospital, there were no lights. And we had to call back and tell them to turn the lights on. What we didn't know is the parking lot lights were turned off at midnight to save on electric. So they, they had to quick turn those on, we circled. Then we landed, we got out, we had the stretcher, took it in, it was a really severely injured uh, trauma patient, fractures, needed chest tubes, needed uh, intubation. We got them all ready to go and got them on the stretcher and we get out to the helicopter and it. we had them on the wrong way. As you know, in a BO105, you can only put the patient in head first not and on the stretcher that, that way. We had to take him out and change him around. And I was glad he was unconscious because then I wouldn't have been so embarrassed for him or <laughs> worry about him. So we got back to the trauma center and uh, the the help had faced like seven stories of windows and all the hospital pe- uh, people were standing there clapping. They're so excited. And Dr. Rhodes came out and he's smiling and he never smiles. And he, and he looked at me and he said, well, what's wrong with you? And I said, we're not doing this anymore. Not another flight until we get the everybody in here and gets oriented to how to work around a helicopter, period. We're not doing it. So the next morning he got the helicopter and I got the, the nurses in and we started learning how to work around the helicopter.
0: That's amazing, <laughs> and especially given your... Background with standards and uh, you know training and right. so forth to have that experience. Uh, that's, uh, uh, but I'm sure that's led you to oh, to it, what you've done. In- it
1: absolutely did. And uh, even the next year we had a fatal accident, and I lost a classmate of mine, and Rick lost his best friend, who was the pilot that he had taught to fly and uh, the patient and the paramedic. And it was it was just uh, a terrible, uh, devastating thing. And I've always, since then, I know how crews uh, feel about these things.
0: What year was and that?
1: That was another lesson. That was, that was uh, April 27th, 1982.
0: <laughs> yeah, you remember exactly, yeah. I do, yeah. Yeah, having been through a crash myself at, at Duke. At, yes. Uh, you remember the exact... Time, in fact, on my uh, while well, I still have the picture hanging from that. Um, the uh, so was the program always with Keystone then? Yes, yes, yeah. we were. Yeah.
1: yeah. While I was there, it's changed since then. But while yeah. I was there, it was Keystone. And the program's
0: still going right now. Oh yeah, yeah, it
1: is. They have ground transport now too.
0: Excellent. So. Um, you got involved early on with ASHBEAMS, too, and I, what is it? The Association for Hospital-Based Emergency Air Medical Services, right? <laughs> <You> got <laughs> it. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, which is now called AIMS or the Association Hi. of Air Medical Services. But on on the safety committee, uh, what caused your interest in in safety and what types of things did you committee work on when you were there?
1: Really the accident is what did it. Um, when I called around and, tr- and tried to find out what kind of training, what kind of policies do you have? I was very much policy driven as an ER head nurse yes. and, and working with the Joint Commission. Um, and I couldn't find anything. So we started writing some safety guidelines uh, for AIMS at the same time HAI was working on some safety guidelines too. And we did several studies uh, and they're published in the Air Medical Journal as to, you know, what kind of training are you giving your crews and that sort of thing. And um, we, you know, Jim Smith in 19, in 1986, and I, in the meantime, I didn't tell you this, Rick and I, and Rick's always been my partner, Rick and I went to uh, D.C., like, every quarter at least. And we would meet with Bob Dodd down there. Oh, sure. And we would talk about accidents. We'd go through all the microfiche until our eyes turned red and, and track all the accidents and then learn by those what what we did wrong, what we, we could do better. With our own accident in Allentown, what we learned was this was a very combative patient and we had no policy about a combative patient. Oh, and in those days we didn't have RSI, so we didn't have chemical restraints. We only had tying the patient's hands and feet down. Yes. And, and the, uh, the ground crew told us that when they put him in the aircraft, he was really struggling and he was unresponsive, but he was combative too. Had we known, uh, we should have had a policy that you, you just don't take this patient by air. You know, you, t- you just have to send them by ground. And we didn't, I mean, we just didn't think that far ahead. And there was no uh, barrier between, in a BO-105, the paramedic sits right next to the pilot. There's no barrier. And the patient is slid in from the back with the head first. So the patient's head and chest are right, uh, almost up against the lap of the paramedic sitting in the left seat. And so, we think what happened is he got loose. He was a big kid, about 18 years old. And we think he pushed Patty, the female paramedic, into the pilot because they were oh. only air about 30 seconds and came down hard right turn. So we think that's what happened. And so after that, Rick and I would get invited and talk about this and talk to people about barriers in an aircraft in these small aircraft same thing with the bell where you could potentially have the patient kicking into yes, the pilot yes, and the control yes. and so we finally got the um, aviation the uh, manufacturers bell and mvb to look at putting barriers in because you know there was all kinds of oh no it's going to cost money we have to get an scd and, yeah. and all that kind of stuff so um we finally got that across to people. So that was my interest. I just think that we, we needed to really develop a team and we didn't have that. We had pilots doing their thing and we had medical people confident in their clinical skills, but not confident in what, where they were doing those skills. And that's what the committee was working on.
0: Did the committee actually work on safety standards?
1: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we 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 weren't allowed to call them standards. We had to call them guidelines.
0: Guidelines, the yeah.
1: Yeah, and we would meet with HAI, and also they had they had guidelines. And then the national flight nurses started theirs, and they also had safety guidelines. So we were putting these all together. And uh, I don't know if you remember Jim Smith. He was the um, president of Ames in like 1988, I think it was.
2: Yes, um, I do.
1: Yeah. Well, uh, well, Jim was a good friend because he was also from Pennsylvania and he promised everybody that we would do a peer review process. And he called it priority one because of all the accidents. Like in 1986, there were 22 accidents and 15 fatalities. And that was just unacceptable. And at that time, there were not eleven hundred helicopters like there are today so he he promised this but he never did get it going so we took it the safety committee and we got priority one started we did beta testing at duke and also at university of columbia missouri and we uh, we, we found out that you know we were merely looking at safety and how people worked with each other and training we completely overlooked
0: we're at an airport. Sorry, <laughs> <That's okay. laughs>
1: we're at an airport. <laughs> so we completely overlooked the clinical part, and when we were out doing the beta testing, we we discovered that gee, there's a lot of things here that we should be looking at closer. So we developed all the standards and uh, then took it to Ames and I did a feasibility study. I checked with other services like like Jayco at that time, joint commission now. Yes. And they were not interested in doing any kind of accreditation. They knew nothing about aviation. They said, no, we're not doing this. So we did a feasibility study and I took it to Ames uh, and to the general membership. And in 1989 or 90, they, um, they voted to have a separate organization to do accreditation and they loaned us $78,000, and that's how we got started with Canes.
0: Right, which was the Commission on Accreditation of?
1: Uh, well, first it was Commission on Accreditation of Air Ambulance. And,
0: right, right.
1: And, and then it changed later, yeah.
0: To, to include ground. Right, um, right. So uh, back to the beta testing, why were those two sites chosen?
1: Well, Rita the, the, Weber from Duke. I don't know if you sure. remember. Sure. Oh, yeah. No, Rita. Yeah, I know, yeah. was on, was on our safety committee, and I forget who. Uh, doctor, uh, one of the physicians was on our safety committee from Missouri, and those were the two sites that were chosen because they volunteered.
0: Yes. Okay. And,
1: and they were very much looking forward to it.
0: And what were some of the things that you found out through the beta testing? You know, the real important things that you mentioned there.
1: Well, uh, we found out that the um, the crews, as I said before, they 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 seem to be real confident in their clinical skills, but they were never taught to sort of guard the aircraft. They were never taught to, uh, you know, they knew to stay away from the tail rotor, but they were. We watched, and they were kind of clumsy in how they loaded and unloaded the patient. They seemed a little unsure. And there didn't seem to be dialogue between the medical crews and the pilots that like you would expect for a cohesive team. The the other thing was they weren't aware of, I would would ask them, well, what are the FAA rules that you have to abide by? They had no idea that you had to wear seatbelts for takeoff and landings. And I would say to them, so if the patient is coding all of a sudden and you need to attend to the patient's airway while you're landing, what do you do? Oh well, we'd get we get out of our seatbelts and, and do that. So they had no idea how yeah. dangerous things were.
0: So it's really learning the integration with aviation and medicine. It really it's, was. Yeah.
1: And that's, that's what, that's what Kames has all been about because you can't do one without the other. Exactly. Unless you want to, you're negating a lot of things. Yeah. I mean,
0: like even you're describing your first flight, I mean, it's resource <laughs> management. I mean, and yes, uh, that's you know, right. helping the, the pilot <laughs> yeah. and looking out for, you know, um, obstructions, you know, oh, in yeah. flight all and, of that. Yeah, yeah. None of
1: them knew to do that. And that would be, of course, helpful for the pilot.
0: Yeah. So um, the, you brought together leaders, what, in 1990 to, to develop the standards. Who all was involved um, with that?
1: So did you remember Dr. Nick Benson from East Care in yes. North Carolina? sure. So Nick, they had had their own accident, too. So he was very passionate about this. And he became our first chair, and he represented ASAP, College of Emergency Physicians.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And Dr. Rick Hunt, representative of the National Association of EMS Physicians. And you know, Dr. Hunt is with Health and Human Services. You know what he, that he's been doing a lot with the COVID and running yes, conferences. Yes. He's, he's, we still are in touch uh-huh. constantly. Um, and then we had um, the nurses, the paramedics, the communicators. Uh, They were all, all their groups had just been starting in the mid eighties. We had a representative from there, Karen Johnson, who became Karen Rogers was the national nurse's representative. And so those were the, there were seven groups that started out. And the whole concept was um, Ames was, uh, was, considered a trade organization. So we thought it would be best if we had a separate organization, even though it took a lot more, but as a nonprofit agency to to look at this separate from any kind of influences from marketing or trade. So that's why it was set up separately. Since then, we now have 20 member organizations and they're all related to transport and medicine.
0: Right. What are some of the other ones? You don't have to name them all, but... Um...
1: Well, American Academy of Pediatrics joined about a year later, National Air Transport Association, (NATA) that's fixed-wing people. Yes. at and, and FPOs, FBOs, um, we have um, on the international end, we have the European Helicopter Association. And uh, so the, uh, there's also asthma, Aerospace Medical Association. And, and we also have uh, uh, the uh, U.S. Transcom is part of our association. And they're the, they're the government entity that uh, approves any civilian contracts with, with, with transporting military. So yeah. uh, they're very important. And so you cannot get a t- contract without going through an accreditation. It used to be just games, but it's not anymore.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's that's uh, very interesting. All no, are they all voting members then?
1: Yes, uh, yes. Wow. Each organization sends a uh, sends a uh, representative, and they each vote.
0: Yeah, and how often do you meet?
1: Four times a year. Uh, we're meeting for the first time in two weeks in person.
0: Yeah, not virtual. <laughs> and we're,
1: all, we're all very excited about that. Yeah. For the last two years, we've only had Zoom meetings.
0: Are you requiring uh, that they be vaccinated before they? <laughs> yes. Yes, we yeah. are. Absolutely. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. yeah. Right. Um, so let's backtrack a little bit. Uh, so you were elected as the executive director. Um, how did all that happen? Because you had put the things together that
1: yeah, it it was. I mean, Nick Benson was obvious that per, the chairperson he uh, I mean, he really was passionate about doing this. And since I had all the, the data and all the background and the standards, they just asked me to be executive director. So I was I, le- I had to I didn't have to, but I left my job in Allentown and we were moving at the time anyway in 1990 because Rick was asked to head up an FBO for Rocky Mountain Helicopters in South Carolina. That's yeah. how we ended up there.
0: That's how you were in South Carolina. Yeah. yeah I think that's where I picked up knowing you is when you were Probably. in South Carolina. Yeah. yeah. I think it was when West Michigan Air Care went for our, the accreditation. Uh, yeah. You, so,
1: that was quite a long time ago. <laughs> yes.
0: Yes. Doesn't seem that long, but uh, yeah. Um, uh, you had to, well, I guess, first of all, where's the funding now come from? I mean, you had that initial amount. Was that a loan or was that actually... It was a loan a of eight
1: thousand dollars that we paid back uh, in 2000. Was our, it was our final payment. So paid back in full with interest. And, um, and from then, it was just the programs that applied for accreditation. That's what supports us. We had one grant... Uh, That was given to us for five hundred dollars early on, and that was it. That's all the funding we had. And actually, we almost ran out of money in uh, probably nineteen ninety three, because you know we were had very few people were not running to become accredited in those days, and it it wasn't until some some would get accredited and then competitors would say, oh, well, we're going to get accredited too. And I mean, you didn't have to do it. It wasn't required. So why do, why we have enough to do, we don't need to do this too. So it took a while for it to catch on. I've always had the office in my home to save on money. And um, actually until I moved out here, it was still in my home and we finally were forced to get a real office (laughs) But what happened was we had uh, built a home in South Carolina for Vick's parents who both expired, they were living with us. And so the whole downstairs level was perfect for an office really. And so that's what we were using. And uh, I had two uh, helpers in the office and they, come and go, they would come and go from, from my home. And it, it worked out okay. And uh, while we were really getting lower in our finances, um, I was only really getting paid for specific tasks that I was doing, not not salaried. But we started to recover then around 1994, 95, and at, keep adding on. And so that's how we're supported.
0: Yeah. And what was the big impetus for people to get accredited? Because what's the percentages of, of programs now that are accredited?
1: That are accredited today? Yeah. It's, you know, that's a good question, Ed. It's hard to say. I I guesstimate maybe 70, 75% helicopter programs are accredited.
2: Yeah. But yeah. when
1: you say program, that doesn't mean what it used to because True. there's so many conglomerates and mergers and it's hard to say about what programs, but about 75% in the early days um I can tell you, Roseanne Krantz was one of our early site surveyors, and she was in Fargo, North Dakota. Sure, they yeah. were the very first program. And it seemed like one, you know, toe dip in the water and then a few others and they would start coming in. And I think with those uh, strong program directors, that was helpful, because they were also on like the aims board and that kind of thing. And they would talk to each other about, well, what did you learn from this? And was it worthwhile? And was it worth the money? And we've always tried to keep costs down as much as possible. Uh, Even our training and everything um, for site surveyors, that's one of the things we emphasize. They're not out there to have five-star dinners and that kind of thing. They're not even allowed to accept dinners at, you know, different right. and they go site visit. So we try to keep the cost down for everyone.
0: Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, knowing, you know, some of that early history and how you put this together. I think the other thing, uh, maybe early on, some of the reluctance is that there wasn't any advantage like uh the joint where you have to be for reimbursement purposes. So exactly. is, is that something that is being looked at? Oh, we've tried the,
1: over the years. They're not, CMS is not interested.
0: Really? Not at all. Why? I you think they would be?
1: You, you think that, you know, having the, everything set out for you, that would be easy thing, you know? Well, if they're accredited, then they can get reimbursed. They're just not going to do it. Yeah. yeah. And you know what, Ed, there were 10 states original, like in the late 90s, early 2000s, that said you have to be Keynes accredited, accredited in order to uh, get a state license. Well, that didn't work out well either because we got sued in 1993 and that was very expensive lesson. And so we've encouraged states and there's only one Washington now that, requires CAMES accreditation. We've encouraged the states to do like a, um, a deemed uh, status so that if if they're, if the program's accredited, they probably won't have to go through all their licensing hoops uh, because, you know, that's an advantage. Oh, but we've encouraged them not to say in their rules that they have to be CAMES accredited because it puts the onus on us. And our lawsuit was very costly yeah we our, our our errors and omissions insurance went from three thousand a year to thirty three thousand ever oh, since ever oh. since
0: well you know? wasn't it didn't they do some things where it had to be cams or the equivalent type of thing then some of the states do that too that
1: what they say is uh you you have to be um compliant with the CAME standard or with accreditation standards in yeah. some cases. because yeah, And Arizona doesn't issue a license until they see that you're accredited. I and see. you have to see the certificate of accreditation.
0: Yeah, I know what I know. I remember reading about Colorado and then didn't Michigan do something with equivalent?
1: Michigan had a C of N process. So you, certificate. That's right. That's yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, um, you had talked about the site surveyors um, and Roseanne, um, uh, you know, explain how that all got started and how you developed the training and how many surveyors do you have now?
1: Well, you now have 60 surveyors. In the beginning, um, uh, I went and took the, um, the American Association if I get this right, of um, rehab, rehab facilities had their own accreditation. And they invited me to attend their training. It was a three-day training program that I built our training program on because it was excellent. And what they did was they did uh, like a a mock survey as part of the the training. And so, of course, the first day was all policies, standards, and you have to understand the standards. And then they did a mock survey and then people were given exactly what you would get in an application. They had to review all that and then do interviews. So they test your interview skills. And it was it was really funny because one of the, the uh, people in my little group, they would separate in, in you into groups, was a psychologist. And he got so upset and worried about this course that he threw up his papers and said, that's it. I can't do this. And he, and he left. (laughs) 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 Because you're tested on how you're going to word things. Naturally uh, you're going to get into some situation. And that's, that's what we test in our training too. It's, it's more about how you handle things than even how, you know, you have to know the standards of course, but, you know, you're going to get into situations where people will not be happy with what you're telling them. And of course, uh, always they want to know, well, do you think we're going to be accredited? And site surveyors are always told that's not your decision. You just just tell them what your findings are and that's it. And so we've, we developed that in uh, 1991 was our first class and then we've done like eight, nine classes every, every couple of years we do. And we usually invite 12, we keep it small because it, there's too much information to spread out over and we like to you know handle everyone's questions and concerns. And so it's usually people, we say they have to have four years experience. We don't have any site surveyors with less than 10 years experience now. We have all really, really experienced And
0: And what, what is their backgrounds? Because it does vary. right?
1: It varies a lot. So yeah. nurses, medics, pilots. We have a few mechanics. We have a few communicators. Oh. There's hospital administrators and there's physicians. We have a few physicians. Um, there are certain places that ask us, could you send a physician? Not, not so much anymore, but it used to be that way because they had physician teams, so they wanted oh. a physician to be oh, there. So yeah. we, t- we, we try to tailor it as much to what their needs are and what their program is. And so, for example, we have fixed wing pilots and also rotor wing pilots and pilots who do both. So we for a long distance fixed wing service, we wouldn't send a rotor wing pilot. That just doesn't work. And that's why we have so many site surveyors because you need to tailor it a little bit to what the, what the program. So it's mission. usually
0: some type of clinical background and then clinical aviation of the two yes. areas. Yeah. Yeah. Um,
1: yeah. And, and we like to now accept uh, people who will we'll be interviewing new uh, for a new class in a couple months. We like to accept people who have been through the King's process themselves because they, they can understand a little bit about what, what they're supposed to do and what they're testing against. Yeah.
0: Yeah, I've, I've always thought it. you know, it's been great to have to have someone uh, and I've been more the program director of, of programs that that uh, you have someone that is a CAMES surveyor, yeah. because I think you just learn so much and you're you're up to date with standards and so forth. So then when you go through the process yourself, you're you're much more uh, ready for it.
1: Oh, they don't do this for the money because they're only paid four hundred dollars a day plus yeah. travel and expenses. Right. But um, they, they all think that they're, they, and they can take things back to their own service. And um, they're not out there really to be consultants. They're out there to, to just document their findings. But many times they can, you know, if they're asked, what. Well, what would you do in this case? And if they're from another uh, service, they're told you never bring up your program. You could say things like, "Well, what I've seen in the past," yeah, or yeah. "This is what I've, uh, I've, you know, observed," or something. So it's it's tricky.
0: Yeah, I think the nice thing, though, even for someone that is a surveyor, that your program is that you learn a lot by going to other programs. Oh, you, you do. You know, you learn things that you can bring back is there a rule about bringing back specific things or if you've got no. ideas okay. no
1: that should be that should be an advantage for you and absolutely you can bring things back now if they're going to maybe copy something a policy of course they have to get permission for that but as far as bringing concepts and different ways of doing things that happens all the time
0: yeah the the other thing that i liked and i used Ooh, I think the last two times when I said Lifelink is um, having um, you know, a, a mock survey done mm-hmm. through that. Talk about that program.
1: We, uh, we have a consulting arm and it's completely separate from accreditation. So there's no promise that you'll be accredited if you hire a consultant. Sure. And, but, but it's good because it'll take you through, especially if you have specific needs. Sometimes programs contact us saying say that they're, they're just not doing everything they need to do for quality. Could you send somebody who's particularly uh, advanced in quality management? And so that's, those are the kind of things that we do. Consultants are um, senior site surveyors or former board members.
0: Yeah, so they're not actually, so they can do surveys as well.
1: They can, the, yeah. But if they consulted with a program in the past three years, then they wouldn't be to assigned the, to the, to do yeah. a survey.
0: Well, what I found particularly helpful with the mock, and I, you know, had a, a little bit of pushback from some people. Oh, you know, this will be fine. It was the new people. At your organization. Yeah, and when exactly. you have the consultant, they walk through as a consultant and, and make you feel very comfortable. Right. And it, I know in getting feedback from the staff that was, you know, new into their positions that, boy, that was really helpful, you know, yeah. for us to prepare for the, uh, the real survey. Oh, good. I'm and, glad um, to hear that. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm a big proponent. And I think if anybody's listening on this podcast, you, you ought to look into that. Because even if you think that you have everything down, there's there's stuff. And I've been at programs that, oh, we're, we're fine. We're, you know, we're, <laughs> we're the top of the game. I said, I will bet that there will be things that we're, we're not doing as well as we could. And every sure. time every time there was. So um, yeah, so I, it's such a, a wonderful uh, process for people. You had talked about the number of air medical programs that are accredited. When did the ground piece get added and how many ground transport programs now? And are they part of the air medical program or are these uh, standalone
1: not necessarily. Uh, we, we changed our name in 1987 to Commission on Accreditation Medical Transport. Right. And, um, and we even have one boat that's accredited. But anyway, the, the ground uh, piece came about be- mostly from the specialty teams because they contacted us and they said, you know, we don't have anything like this. We need it for our teams. And so they helped us build those, uh, those ground transport guidelines and standards and so that started in 1987. There's about five independent ground services that are accredited, for, but for the most part, they're part of either a rotor or fixed wing service. In addition, to, so, we would, do yeah, I, I so you know, we would look at both. I thought so. It's both.
0: And it is the Kames ground is that more critical care ground?
1: <laughs> so the rule is the policy is if you have a critical care ground service in addition to your air service and you're advertising and accepting requests for that service, you must include that in the accreditation process because you're using the same everything. But if you're doing ALS, BLS only, you don't have to include it. And some it gets confusing because some programs use a ground service if they're down for weather or maintenance.
2: Yes, we
1: don't we don't say that's a dedicated service. You don't have to include that, unless the numbers start increasing and increasing, and you find yourself you're just going to offer ground. Then that has to be included if it's critical care.
0: Yeah, and then in those cases, I think I ran into that a program where you have. Um, You're using a ground service, like only when you're down for weather, but then uh, the compliance that they had to have as far as the equipment, et cetera, um, you know, on the ground unit, which they might not have had in the past.
1: Right. right. Yeah. Yeah. It, It gets very confusing because business, the way it's now, it is... It's completely opposite of how it used to be <laughs> when yeah. we had one helicopter at one hospital. It's yes. a lot different now. <laughs> yes.
0: Yeah. Big time. I mean, that's, that's another whole podcast, I think. Yes, it is. Um, <laughs> um, so how does, how does a program, an independent program would they have both the, the cause or the, that's the commission on the accreditation of ambulance services, which is more the ground piece and CAMES or,
1: some do, some do, some yeah. do. Um, Kaz, uh, we're real close with the executive director there. They're more, um, I guess you could say financially focused. They, wor- they worry more about the business end of-, of I see, services. I didn't know that. And they do um, critical care too, and they do ALS and BLS primarily. And they started around the same time we did.
0: Oh, is that right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I didn't, I don't know much about their standards, but I was wondering, you know, with more uh, programs getting into the ground or, or independent grounds, you know, because the crossover from ALS to specialty and there's really not a critical care designation. um,
1: Well, uh, I, we're struggling right now. The board is, and we meet, and in fact, we're going to talk about this again because what we're finding is uh, across the country, critical care ground units are mostly two paramedics or a paramedic and a an EMT.
0: EMT, right?
1: And what they what they call a critical care paramedic could be anything from a homegrown course to the course in Baltimore to taking the FPC uh, certification, which none of those really mesh with our standards because in our standards we say, if you're the lead person and you're a paramedic, you have to have 4,000 hours of critical care. And who's gonna get that? Because they're not allowed to work in critical care for the most part yeah. in hospitals. And so we're, we're struggling with this because um, our standards don't match what's being done. But on the other hand, we don't feel that, the critical care that's performed by many of these services are what up to our expectations for critical care.
0: Right.
1: So it, it's, it's interesting, we're, we're looking at this from all angles and how to um, help the programs so that they are actually training in critical care. A lot of them feel because they've been doing this for years and years and years and calling themselves critical care, that that should be enough, good enough, you know? So it's, it's interesting. It really is.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah. Is it because there's not a, a specific reimbursement for critical care? Is it, would that help?
1: That would help. That yeah. would help. And, and the government doesn't designate even critical care that way. So it, it's, yeah. It, there, there's know, what
0: specialty care, I think. There's is,
1: specialty yeah. care. That's what they call critical care. Yeah. Right, yeah. And that's confusing because we call specialty care neonate pediatrics.
0: Right, right. So, yeah. Um, so um, having having been the uh, director of a number of programs, I know the standards are revised periodically. And is there a, a set schedule on when, CAMES does this, and then when a program is coming up for accreditation, how do you know which standards? I know that was always, well, we have the new standards, but yet we're under the old standards. And I think we've even said sometimes, well, let's prepare to the new standards anyhow. But uh, yeah. so how does that all work? Well,
1: the standards we try to do every three years, this because of the COVID delays and because we're adding mobile intensive uh, mobile integrated health in the next set of standards. It's going to be another year until those come out. So that'll be the 12th edition. Uh, we're now on the 11th edition. Anyone that applies uh, during the time that the next edition is printed and published, like say October of 22, if you're at, if you applied or your reaccreditation is due then you would still be under the old standards until six months later. I see. So, so we, tr- we give a six months, leeway six months lag. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: yeah and yeah. then
1: of course everything changes because not just the standards, but the whole um, program information form that's now online and we have to change all of that uh, to match with the standards. So it's, it's a process.
0: Yeah, that's called the PIF, right? The PIF, yeah. That's <laughs> yes, right. Um, you, uh, I, I know from reading some of the material that, that you use, the ANSI or American National Standards mm-hmm. Institute. Um, why why does Kames use that and what's, what's that mean exactly?
2: It
1: means that they have accredited us as a standards-producing organization I see. and recognized us for that. So we have to go according to their process, which is a little more detailed than what we did before. We always had a standards committee, but now every time uh, we, this is all open and transparent. So every time there's a draft, it's posted on the website. If people do respond and send in their suggestions or ideas, we have to respond back to each one of those people. So uh, Dudley Smith has my associate, has been excellent in handling the standards and the ANSI process for the standards. And we're proud of that because we kept being asked, well, why aren't you accredited by somebody? Well, who? (laughs) I mean, there really isn't an overall agency that says you, you pass accreditation for accrediting agencies. You can start an accrediting agency from a real estate office, for example.
0: Yeah. So, is that a form of accreditation though? Or is it, it it
1: not not in the true sense that we're used to, but they yeah. call it you're accredited as a standards producing. And CAS yeah. is in the same category. They yeah, also yeah. have that.
0: And and but do they come in and review things? I mean, is it a process?
1: Yeah, they They don't come in ordinarily because it's mostly shuffling papers and and things back and forth. And thank God for email now, but um, that's how it, that's how it usually done. If they feel like they want to visit, they certainly can. And that they leave that open as, as an idea.
0: So is it in like how you develop the standards and um...
1: it's mostly the process. Yeah. And how they're passed and who passes them and how, how are they voted on and, what is uh, the committee's role? Who's on the committee? That and how they
0: ch- how they change and how they are yeah. approved. Yeah, right. So, um, Kames has also uh, went global. What twenty um, yes. fifteen? Tell us about how this happened. How has it changed the organization? And has it influenced any of the standards? Um, yeah. That,
1: that was really interesting. I knew Stefan Becker from uh, Swiss Air Rescue for many years, uh, meeting with him at HAI. And I would always say to him, why don't you become Keynes accredited? Why doesn't Swiss Air Rescue? Oh, he was real reluctant. Well, he finally uh, got EHAC, the European Helicopter Association to say that, well, maybe they should join um, Keynes. And so, um, we sort of got together that way. They're no longer really a member because URAMI is also a, an accreditation agency for Europe. Yes. Yeah. But we, we decided that we're going to do Keynes Global because we had applications. The very first uh, international we did was actually Air Rescue South Africa in Johannesburg. Oh. That was our first one. And we kept getting applications from Bangkok, from Thailand. And that was before we even developed Global. But it helped us because as we went out and tried to fit what they were doing with our standards, it wasn't exactly a match, especially when it came to clinical training and mm. you know local rules and their guidelines versus FAA and that kind of thing. Uh, and actually, the European EASA guidelines, uh, F- regulations are much stricter than FAA is. Oh, even, really? it, even the Canadian CAT is stricter than the FAA. So we learned all of this by going out and doing, and we'd always done Canadian services. They're part of CAMES because we say North America right. is CAMES. But CAMES Global is anything outside of North America. Uh, we now have uh, a couple services um, Embrace—it's a—it's a children's specialty service in the UK, and one of their their lead medical director is on our board of directors. And then we have Swiss Air Rescue—they've been accredited now for several cycles. Um, the South African people dropped, and they're no longer part of Canes, but they were a, a learning tool, you might say, and helped us, de- you know, decide what standards we changed the standards to uh, match kind of what's done outside of the North America. So there are different standards, but not entirely. Many of the management and uh, QM and that kind of stuff is the same. It's just mostly uh, the clinical requirements and that sort of thing that are different. And so those standards were changed. We incorporated there, they don't call it incorporated, they call it registered. We were registered in Zurich in 2015. Oh. And that board is smaller. That's, that's uh, Stefan and I are considered the founding members. The board is uh, is made up of uh, John uh, Greinick from uh, Flight Paramedics because they're now international. So right. he's on both boards. And Ashley Smith, who's with NADA on our KAMES board, serves on the KAMES global board as the treasurer kind of person. And then we have uh, Dr. Dune from Bangkok, who's uh, serving on our board of directors. So when we set up a meeting, we have to set up for <laughs> Pacific time zone, Eastern oh, European gosh. and <laughs> and Asia.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's, that's difficult. So... It- it's a separate organization
1: it is as a separate organization i see yeah
2: mhm
0: and it's chartered in zurich then in zurich oh right? yeah yeah and just an example of maybe some of the differences the big differences between the standards the north american standards and some of the others
1: the uh, the aviation parts we we don't have as um, as many um, I guess you could say uh, pilot training and and pilot requirements are much stricter in those countries. So they meet and exceed most of what we had in the first place. The, uh, The medical part, the clinical is interesting because in Europe, for example, paramedics are often trained more so than nurses are. They have a higher level of training. So, and certifications like ATLS is sort of global, but not all the other things like PALS isn't always global. They might have their own PALS certification. So we have to look at what their certifications are that are accepted in their country. And we had to change a lot of that. The communications is a little bit different too. Um, We don't see, um, if you ever have an opportunity to visit Swiss Air Rescue, their communications department is is a whole building almost by itself, because um, they have to do both helicopter, fixed wing, and they it's it's fantastic in in many languages. Because of course, in Europe, you're going to have more than English to yeah. to worry about. So it those kinds of things are really interesting when we. We put together a site survey a class for that particular Games Global. We have some wonderful people that speak several languages. There's, there's a doctor, a physician in, from India, who just speaks probably every language you could think of. And she, she came to, I was amazed. She came to our meeting, our site surveyor training and knew more than I did. She must've memorized every standard because she knew them all. You couldn't, you couldn't trick her on anything.
0: (laughs) So are the site surveyors then they're from, it's a, they're from those countries. They're, they're different.
1: Yeah. We have uh, a few from Germany. We have uh, a few from uh, uh, the UK and uh, a pilot mechanic from uh, Switzerland. So there's yeah. a couple there. And we have one from uh, from Bangkok, a physician.
0: Yeah, wow.
1: And, and so, that was the other thing, the, the physician, the makeup of the teams is totally different. In Europe, it's not acceptable for a nurse paramedic team. They mostly want physician right. and nurse. So that's a little bit different. Um, And that's true, also in Bangkok, and but the nurses there, we were impressed with the. They have to go through what the Air Force goes through as far as their uh, training in aviation, so they're they're a little bit ahead of most what we see everywhere else.
0: Yeah, did did you from that experience, and what what a wonderful experience to to have all that to see to see the different ways things are done. Did any of that come back to came North America? Did you learn some things that, you know, to change some of the standards here? I,
1: I don't know if we changed any standards. What I, what I think what changed were attitudes, because we, we have mindsets and it has to be this way. And some people are black and white and some aren't. And So when we look at how you, how people comply with the standard, it doesn't always have to go this way. There could be other innovative ways. That's mostly what we learned and how broaden broadened broadened the way we look at compliance with standards. Yeah. That helps a lot.
0: Yeah. That's a really good, uh, good point. Good. uh, Something that you learned. So um, we'll continue on here. So, um, Kames says vision, mission, values. Um, when and how were they developed and what exactly are they?
1: Our mission right from the beginning didn't change. We want to improve patient care and safety in transport. Yeah. So that's it. Our uh, vision is that all patients will be transported by qualified crews in the safest manner and by the most appropriate transport vehicle because that's that's where we find a lot of problems yeah and our values are fair ethical um consistent i always have to look at that accountable and patient and safety focused those are our values and those those actually weren't developed for a couple years because uh it it took um, actually. Do you know Dr. John Overton? He joined sure. our board. Sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, John brought a lot of this with him, as well as just culture. He's the one that came up with the just culture uh, training, and um, he's the one that you know was well. You, you know, you your values aren't you. You need better values, and he's the one that that brought. A, and this is the the best thing about having representation from different parts of the country and from different organizations, because we all live in our own experiences. And he had great experiences that he brought to the board.
0: Yeah, that's what my comment earlier about, you know, there's nothing that we can learn, you know, we're doing everything just great in our own little bubble here. Um, And uh, so uh, just going on your comment, most appropriate vehicle, you seem to emphasize that what, what is it about that?
1: Well, with, with increased competition in the United States, I'm talking about, mm-hmm. um, it, it is sometimes difficult for helicopter services to even survive because if you don't have, and you know this better than I do, Ed, if you don't do a certain number of flights, you're not going to even cover your fixed costs. And so there's, there's a lot of competition. We did a video a couple of years ago on helicopter shopping because, yes. um, you know, it we, we would find that if you didn't uh, get a, you know, a service, you're calling a service and they said they can't come, then they'll go to another service and the weather's the same no matter what. It, and, you, you know, you're going to end up with maybe someone having an accident. And that's actually happened. So we South Carolina, South
0: Carolina. Yes, absolutely. I, I, w- I was there. During that's that. right. Yeah,
1: that, that was. Yeah, that was. That was a prime example. Yes. So competition is really stiff. and if you're trying to do when in, in our utilization review standards, we talk about how um, how do you get back to people? Do you get back to people? If they've called you in, and you've trended this on a consistent basis for inappropriate helicopter transport. And what we'll hear from most people is, we can't do that because then they won't call us anymore at all you know kind of yeah, thing yeah. it's it's a fine line they have to walk i i realize that but um but really you can't be consistently using the helicopter for things that could have gone by ground yes and so we we really look heavily into utilization review when we're seeing a program
0: yeah it's tough i know I've- Face that too. I said, we need to tell them, you know, well, then they'll just call the other service. That's
2: right. That's right. And say
0: you're not going to do it. Rather than, you know, really learning from the experience and and also the cost to the the patient. That's right. Um, Yeah. So um, and moving on, um, you've uh recently created a ward in the memory of Dr. Ralph Rogers, um, who was uh the chair of KAMES, Um from what 2000 to 2016 yeah. um and i knew ralph well when i was at west michigan air care and he was at uh uh aero Met up in uh grand rapids it was just to yeah. the north and so we worked together a lot how did the award come about and um when was the first recipient announced
1: we uh we wanted to honor Ralph because he he was just a great chair he's he was one of those people that could get everyone together on something and i must say that our board never has fistfights or out and out <laughs> disagreements <laughs> like we could say about maybe the congress or something but um but he he had this special way of bringing up a point without saying you're wrong or you're right. He would, he would just, he was just fabulous. And so we miss him terribly. And um, we wanted to, and of course, Karen was on our board too, his wife, but yes. they met through canes. So Karen and Rogers, uh, Ralph met through our canes board and um, he, we wanted to honor him in some way. And we thought, well, he was always really um influencing education and what, what could we do to educate anyone who wanted to go further in air medicine or ground transport. And so we, uh, we advertised for uh, donations for a couple of years and we finally were able to award uh, Dr. Uh, Adam Gotchula from University of Cincinnati. And he is doing also a fellowship in anesthesia at the university of Michigan, this guy is like wow. into everything. <laughs> and, but he wanted it really to, so that he could attend MTLI because all his money he said was tied up in, in school and going further. And so he was the first recipient. And that was just last fall. He yes, was,
0: he right. that. yeah, yeah. That. And that's just wonderful to uh, recognize Ralph. I, I knew him. I, I think I, ask you before, I had a quick little side story because I asked, you know, was he known as being a techie when he was on the board? And I remember I'd I'd have lunch (laughs) with Ralph, we'd meet somewhere in between Grand Rapids and Kalamazoo. And he said, I just got this new computer and uh, it's got one megabyte Uh, you know, of memory. And I mean, I I remember both of us going like, Oh, my gosh, that's just incredible. Um, But he was always pushing the uh, envelope with tech. And of course, I, I I'm forever same, grateful,
1: so. absolutely <laughs> to Ralph, because we used to have all the application and materials they send us would be in notebooks this high. And <laughs> yes. and we'd have to carry these notebooks. This is what kept me in shape, I think. We had to carry <laughs> these <laughs> these notebooks. In fact, we were we had a board meeting in Albuquerque one year. And I'll never forget this. I'm trying to carry these two stacks of notebooks across the big street there from the hotel, and I dropped them, and all the papers flew out oh. everywhere. Oh, it was it was awful. And, and so, I, when I was telling Ralph the story, he said, "That's it. We're not doing notebooks anymore. We're, we're do, everything has to come in by computer. We're not doing any of this paper stuff
2: anymore."
0: <laughs> oh, that's a great story. Yeah. Um. You're uh, currently working on developing some mobile integrated integrated health standards yes. uh, with a special committee and uh, yes. what's this all about? What we
1: do when we're doing an entity that all of us are not completely familiar with is uh, we go out to the community and see who's actually doing these types of services. We did the same with, uh, with our special operations standards that we did two years ago. This Committee for Mobile Integrated Health is made up of about 10 people from around the country who are, have been doing community paramedicine, telemedicine, those kind of things for several years. Some of these people have been doing it for 10 years and I didn't even realize it was going that long. And so they're helping us develop these standards. Um, it's funny because uh, we take the, the standards we have for canes and have been paring them down, separating them out and that kind of thing. At least we had a base to start with, but we will read something and we'll say, well, that doesn't make sense for, if you're just going out to check somebody's blood pressure, you know, yeah. kind of thing. Wow. So it's been a great process. And uh, we're about to put out, I think a third draft of that. Actually, Dudley will be attending EMS today and the, one of our committee members uh, is going to be giving a talk about community in, um, integrated health, and she's going to be talking about the, the standards we developed so far, even though it's only a draft. Yeah, so we're hope we're hoping to get those out next year.
0: That's wonderful. Is CAS doing the same thing?
1: They have some standards uh, in their in their new standards that they put out, but I have no idea how they develop those uh you know who they used or, or whatever i don't know
0: do you, do you know how many community programs there are now i mean is it it's grown right I mean, it's,
1: oh it's really grown and yeah. you know it it has to, this is the future of healthcare, i think let's face it yeah. uh, and and i and that's why we you know at first we were uh, dudley said well i don't know if we should do this because um Nobody's going to apply for accreditation for this because most of them are, there's like one or two people that do this, you know, in some cases, some cases they're part of a hospital, but, um, and, and we thought about it and we said, no, it doesn't matter. Even if somebody doesn't apply for accreditation, at least the standards are out there for people to follow. They, you know, that there's something out there. So this has been a great process. Um, I learned about it, too, in Bangkok when I was there several years ago. They had a very sophisticated telemedicine process that was unbelievable. So we're way behind in the United States. We really are. And that's why we got to get these standards out.
0: That's interesting, because most of what I read is usually it's the ground-based services that are doing this. Are are there some air medical programs that are doing doing this? Yes,
1: MedCenter Air. Is doing. Oh, okay. yeah. Uh-huh. I did not and know. So that. they're on our committee. There's very few, but they they are more and more starting to integrate this.
0: Yeah, yeah. It, I agree. I think it is the future. Um, mm-hmm. well, let's talk about your staff uh, at Cames. I know it's not a big staff that you have, but you, I know your assistant <laughs> executive director is very well with Dudley from you know working on the Ames board and right. uh, and also the Medical Transport Leadership Institute, which. We were in, And then Jan Eichel, you know, worked with me at West Michigan Air Care right. as the chief flight nurse. Uh, tell us about what they do and also what other staff you have.
1: Well, Dudley is considered the administrative associate executive director because he does a lot with, uh, with standards. He helps me with a lot with the policies and he's kind of our sounding board. He's been in this business almost as long as I have, and we've known each other all these years. Yes, um, he's he's been great. Um, Jan is uh, is our clinical associate executive director. It is difficult for me or Dudley to even be current on clinical things because we haven't done them in a long time.
2: Yeah,
1: so she's been excellent, excellent. Great. She has she does the quality management service for kane So she does our internal quality management and then posts uh, her findings on our website. We try to be as transparent as possible. So between the two of them, I have excellent help all the time. Um, in the office, I don't want to lose my people in South Carolina because they've been with me. Shelly's been with me, I think, 15 years. And Gigi, about seven years, seven, eight years. She'll kill me if I'm wrong, but that's probably what it
2: is.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And they've been great. So Gigi does all the scheduling. I mean, any, all the scheduling of site surveyors, and that's a task because you're trying to get people's schedules with the hospital or the program schedule and are they acceptable and who has a conflict of interest. And it, it's very complicated but she does a great job and we schedule anywhere from 20 to 24 each quarter. So that's, that's pretty, uh, pretty hefty job for her. Shelly is our bookkeeper, but she's also the person that anybody calls if they have any problems with the the online PIF or anything that has to do with the business end of the office. She's fantastic. She's my right hand, really.
0: Yeah. So it was, when did Dudley come on?
1: He was with the Ames board, and he came on um, because I think as as well, he was a site surveyor for a long time. Yes. So yeah, yeah so even before he came on the board, but um, I about eight years, maybe it's ten years ago, he started on the board, and um, and he was representing Ames. At
0: the time, right? I remember he was the Ames. Yeah, Rep. he was yeah. the
1: Ames representative. It was oh. even probably before that, but then um, we needed another position. I was way over my head, and so we hired him as as the associate executive director. And that was probably about ten years ago.
0: Yeah. And then when did Jan come? I, I lose track of time. It's me been, too. <laughs> it's been it's been a while now, isn't it? I yeah, mean, I
1: think Jan's been on about since about five years ago. Yeah. And, yeah. and we found that we needed yet another person. Um, we, we run pretty slim on people, but so far we're keeping up with what we have and we'll see what happens in the future.
0: Do you see the staff growing with all the additional work? It or, might, or, it might,
1: yeah. it might. We'll have to have to see as time goes by.
0: Um, let's talk about uh, covid Nineteen. I mean, it's. I've been following. uh, If you've listened to some of the other podcasts about what programs have done, you know what the initial reaction was. Even had a podcast that I talked to a number of people. Geez, how how is this affecting you? Um, But it's affected everyone. And uh, how how has it affected the, you know, the accreditation process and site surveys? What what have you had to do differently? But I. But the other thing I look at is. What are we learning from that that maybe we can carry on? That we don't have to go back to the same way we did things. So
1: those are those are all good questions. So last fall we started to do site visits, partial, virtual, and partial, partial in person. So we wouldn't trying to keep the mitigation of the spread of the virus as low as possible. We would send one person out and one person would stay back and do virtual interviews and tours and that kind of thing. I see. And then, um, and of course, we didn't have the vaccination back then. So they had to, uh, you know, we had very specific things they had to do in attestation forms they had to sign. So everything was above board before we even went out. We had no problems at all from that. But then when we started the spring uh, 2021, surveys, we decided we're not going to send anybody anymore because things were like January looking pretty bleak. So from then we um, we started to do all virtual sur- surveys. And so the policies again had to change. And so when you're doing a tour or you're trying to, for example, you're trying to look at uh, somebody's medications are they you know are they outdated or anything like that how it's very difficult to do virtually and so we developed a lot of procedures for how to conduct a virtual visit Um, we did about 24 virtually in spring we're gradually coming back now we only did three out of the 24 for the summer meeting that are virtual And we even changed one of our accreditation decision policies because we felt that a program wasn't getting really a fair, you know, review by virtual, total virtual. And so if they were lacking, and mostly what we saw with programs was they couldn't keep up with some of the training. A lot of the courses were canceled. You couldn't get into the OR. So, you know, for intubations and all this, you know, on and on and on. So we had to give a little leeway. So if a program um, was coming up for reaccreditation, and they had a virtual survey and they didn't have full accreditation last time, we might do a conditional accreditation, meaning if they have a year to come back to us again and then we'll come out and see you. So it gives them a year's time. And so we had a couple conditional decisions as a result of that how it affects long-term you know i hear a lot of people that work in offices say oh we don't even need the office building anymore we'll work from home no it doesn't it doesn't work with site visits i truly don't think so you can see what you can see in this little screen but you don't get the general gist of things unless you're out there it just is not the same and we want to make sure we're fair to everybody um, the programs now that are saying that they want only virtual visits are mostly like children's hospitals who still have very strict guidelines about visitors and that sort of thing. And who we send out, they have to have uh, they have to be vaccinated or they're not going to be sent out. And that's just, right. you know, I've had a lot of people say to me, that's not legal. That's not right. That's <laughs> I don't care. Yeah. We're not taking your oc- occupation away from you. We'll get, we'll find you something else to do. They're only a paid by site visit. They're not really employees. They're contracted. So we're not putting anybody else at risk and we're not putting site surveyors at yeah. risk. You don't have to.
0: There's a lot of hospitals you read, you know, are requiring you know, I know. going and just saying, no, I mean, there was, there was controversy. at One of the hospitals that was a member of uh lifeline when they, um, required flu vaccine oh, this yeah. was a few years oh, ago. Yeah. And that was a big controversy, but you can see with COVID, I mean, geez, you, you know, why people don't want to. And it's now beyond with me. this, yeah, now with this Delta variant um, I know. it's, it could be, you know, Missouri's going through quite a bit right now, you know, are we opening up too quickly because people aren't, you know, they get rid of the mask mandate, you know, the CDC, you know, WHO has not gotten out of that I know. guideline. And I, I pretty much personally following that, I think even, I, you know, I bike a lot and I, I have a mask uh, that I'll pull up if I'm around too many people. I mean, I just sure. don't want to take a chance. And Minnesota is actually pretty high vaccination rate, but there's other areas of the country. They're not. And yeah. the Delta variant is even more virulent. It's than, scary. Yeah, it is. It really is. And then you you hate you don't want to see it keep mutating. That's um, right. Which, yeah. you know, gets around possibly some of the, the vaccines. So um, at another uh, area, how many other accreditation agencies are there for air medical transport?
1: There's two others in the world. Um, and there's Urami European. Yeah, you talked about that, yeah. And a funny story about that is uh, I was at a conference in Interlaken about 2002, I think it was. And I was invited to speak about our accreditation. And um, Dr. Weinlich came up to me. He's the one that invited me and he said, I have surprise for you. And I said, what's that? Mm-hmm. We, we have our own accreditation now and we used your standards. <laughs> that's, that's how that was introduced. Yeah. And what do you say? I mean, it was two minutes before I was supposed to go up and speak about games accreditation. When I took it back to the board, they were not happy, but there wasn't anything we could do, you know, at that point in time, not that I could think of. So that's how they started out. And there's another accreditation agency called NAMPTA. And I can never get what it really stands for, National Air Alliance. I I had
0: to look it up myself. So I have a National Accreditation Alliance of Medical Transport Applications. Okay. Doesn't make sense to me, but. um,
1: Yeah. Um, They started out kind of borrowing standards. (laughs) And um, I, you know, I still to this day don't know what experience level they have. They have. Uh, Griff, who's a very nice gentleman, and um, he's he his background was real estate. He was in real estate in California. So, as I said before, you can anybody can start an accreditation agency, and that's what they did. And I, they have about thirty accredited services.
0: Yeah, the, they. Um, I know you can't get into the details, but there was a lawsuit, obviously, between. Ames and Nampa, and, Amta and um, um, but why why did they develop?
1: I'm not sure. Yeah. I think he felt that uh, he you know he made a lot of money in real estate. Let's try something else, and yeah. that's why he started this.
0: Yeah, I think as when I was the Ames president, now called chair. I think there were some programs that were, yeah, you know, they would call me, you know, as the president chair of Ames like well you got to do something and I, I can't do anything about my own program <laughs> what do you think you know uh, we have you know Ames has just got one seat on the board and I said that's you've got to take that up with Cames so I don't know if that mm-hmm. was part of it um, but uh, uh, we're
1: not afraid of competition at all uh, yeah. we're really not and uh, but it you know you'd like to see it at least sort of equal levels and they, they don't have representation like we do from all the major organizations. Yeah. Um, so it's a different process.
0: And they too, I think that was part of the lawsuit too, they too took the, stand, the Kames standards and sort of used them mm-hmm. as their basis. Um, Eileen, you've written a, a lot of uh, articles. You have a, now a regular column that I read all the time. The Air medical journal. Um, uh, do you enjoy writing?
1: Yeah, I'm probably a better writer than I am a nurse. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I've always loved history and writing and um, took many courses in in English and everything. So I I love to write. I'm doing a book right now. Did you want me to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, I've been working on this for several years. And what I thought about was the people that I met early on that had a Part in starting helicopter air ambulances in the in the U.S. and so I interviewed uh, Marius burke from Air Methods, who I didn't find out till much later was one of the Air Air America pilots in the '70s who did the one of the last flights out in Da Nang, Vietnam. Oh
0: wow! I and, and he, has,
1: he yeah. has a fabulous background. Yeah, and I knew him as a DO for. Um, for Air Methods. And Russ Spray, who everybody knows because he was Rocky Mountain Helicopters' first person that started with Denver and Flight Real Life as the very first hospital-based helicopter program. Right. Russ has very interesting business stories to tell. And Dr. Alistair Kahn, who's our cur- who was our current chair on the KAMES board, Dr. Khan's from Boston Med Flight and head of the Massachusetts General Emergency Department. And I've known Dr. Khan for 30 years because he and Dr. Rhodes at the program in Allentown both served under Cowley in Maryland. And that's how they knew each other. So Dr. Khan has these great history stories about Dr. Cowley and how that trauma center started from a four bed unit to what they are today and how the golden hour started and all of that. It's, wow. it's just fascinating. And I thought, well, these are the three entities that have come together to do air ambulance in the United States. Really, they're the ones that combined. It was time and space for that to happen after Vietnam. And so I bring these together and then I talk about um, how I observed all this through these three people, their interviews and we're, i'm working with a publisher now on the island actually this is a perfect place because uh i don't know if you know john nance who wrote the very famous uh book uh blind trust they even made a movie out of it yes not the initial uh crm and uh crew coordination in an aircraft john actually uh, is on CBS or one of the, the big stations as an aviation advisor, you'll see him every once in a while featured. And so there's famous authors that live on this island. It's it's really, uh, really fascinating. So I'm working with a publisher who's helping me to, because I don't know, you know, spacing and, page this page left and where you know where to put pictures or quotes and that kind of thing so he's helping me with that and i'm hoping to get that out next year
0: that's absolutely wonderful that you're you're doing that uh uh actually it was tammy chapman that said you know that you know eileen's (laughs) writing a book and i said no i didn't know that so (laughs) so i said that'd be great to interview her for the podcast because i've you know wanted to talk to you about came so uh, the working title is, uh, you think you're going to stick with that? or
1: I don't think so. Uh, yeah. My publisher doesn't think that's a good title. I just put <laughs> helicopters in medicine, but he's, he's got some other ideas.
0: <laughs> yeah, I think that's great that you have the love of history. And um, I think one of the articles that you wrote, too, uh, I think it was a chapter in the Air Medical Crew curriculum, The History of Air Medical Transport. Um, That's that's fantastic that you're that you're doing that. Um, And uh, you've become so much a part of the history of what we've done, too. So uh, that's. uh,
1: Well, when I started this book uh, and my publisher first read it, he said, well, where's where's your chapter? I said, well, this isn't about me. And he said, no, no, no no, no, you're an you're important part of putting this all together. So no, you have to have a chapter. So he talked me into
2: it. <laughs> yeah, he,
0: well, he's absolutely right. Uh, <laughs> uh, you have so much of the history. So you've also received two very prestigious awards in our air medical community. The first being the Jim Carlson Award that's given for significant contribution uh, for air medical safety. That was in 1991. And the other, the Marriott, Carlson uh award for outstanding contribution contributions to the air medical transport community that was in 2000 congratulations on both those awards i oh, don't know if i you. know of anybody that's received both of those and uh so that's that's quite an honor what what were you what were the specific things you were re- recognized for
1: i think mostly just for uh, you know starting canes and recognizing that safety was an issue in that original Jim Charleston award um, because I'm the one that brought safety guidelines to Ames, ash beans at that time. Oh. Um, and actually I have to give my husband Rick a lot of credit too because he and I would be the ones to go around and lecture to people about safety. He's, he's actually produced the first Communications course for a communication center that we took to Ashbeams. So yeah. we developed a lot of those things and, and got them out there. And um, that's kind of what they were recognizing me for. But I like to say that nobody does this alone. And I mean, I've had great people around me. And especially Rick has been there. He's our IT guy and he, he does it all. <laughs> so He's my, my aviation advisor. So if I have any questions about aviation, <laughs> all I have to do is shout it out. I don't even have to research yeah.
0: it. Well, but it takes, it takes you know, the leadership to, to bring it all together. And I think that's uh, fantastic. You know, congratulations again. Um, let's talk a little bit about your uh, personal life. Um, I think you, uh, you know, originally from eastern Pennsylvania. Um, yeah. uh, talk about Rick. How did you meet Rick?
1: Well, I was the chief flight nurse, newly chief flight nurse, Mm -hmm. and Keystone sent Rick. uh, He was just back from Alaska. He did geological camp flying in Alaska for a couple of years. And uh, so he was new to EMS uh, flying, and they sent him as their lead pilot when we finally got a contract, and that's how we met.
0: So he was uh, with Keystone? Yes. at the time yeah yes. that's great yeah he's yeah. quite an accomplished uh, air medical transport field and pilot and leader so that's fantastic and um do you have any you said you have a daughter
1: yes, yes. i have a daughter from my previous marriage lisa uh-huh. and she's a uh certified psych counselor in philadelphia at the gfk center the oh, wow. clinical coordinator for uh uh, Transgender uh, population and uh, has quite a, a interesting <laughs> career there.
0: Yeah, that's great. So, do you guys have any pets or do I? Oh, yeah. <laughs> we
1: do rescue dogs. So, we oh, lost our fantastic. two labs. Oh, yeah. We, we love dogs. We lost our two labs in uh, oh, about 2015 16 while we were living in Colorado when Rick was working with Air Methods. And my secretary from South Carolina called one day and she said, you're going to love this puppy. And I know you miss dogs. Well, her friend was driving behind someone in South Carolina and saw a little puppy be thrown out of the car. And she stopped and picked up this precious little dog and, and said, you know, I'm taking him home. And then she called. Gigi, my my secretary, and she said, "Do you know anybody that would want it?" And so that's how I got King. His name is. Yeah. And and then the vet, we we had uh, Gigi take him to our vet, and then she called me and she said, "Um, you know, I have a dog. It's a beagle. Her name's Layla, and she was dropped off here. Somebody just dropped her off, and she's so lonely. And I can't. Uh, would you take her?" <laughs> Oh, my God. I know you had two dogs before, so that's how we got <laughs> we got two dogs. Layla died last year, but we now have a King, and he's precious, and yeah, he's he's definitely part of our family.
0: What kind of breed is it, or is it uh, well mixed? It, of-
1: it's a Carolina dog, which. <laughs> I never heard of, but apparently the native Americans had these dogs. They raised oh. on the border, South Carolina and Georgia. There's a whole history behind it. Oh. And they all look a little bit different, but, um, they're sort of medium sized dogs, just very cute. He's black and white and he's, he's adorable. Great personality.
0: Well, I, I, I thought you were kidding at first when you said Carolina. No, yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: It's really strange.
0: Yeah. Um, you're, uh, Doing a lot of, vol- I don't know how you have all the time to do all this stuff, but you're currently doing a lot of volunteer work. Uh, talk about the, the work that you're doing and the agencies that you're doing it for.
1: Well, when I when I moved here a couple of years ago, this is a very wealthy island, a lot of wealthy yes, people. And, and so I was listening to a lecture by the uh, school district president, and she talked about almost 40% of the children are on free or reduced uh, fee lunches. And I couldn't believe it. Wow! And I took it to Will Hamilton, who owns Island Air. And I said, Will, can you believe that many children are are on free or reduced lunches? And he was all upset about it. And we we checked with several agencies in the city, and that was really true. So we got a group together, and we called them Nourish to Flourish. And we developed this thing called 36 Weekends. And they go around, and on Fridays, they take... uh, a brown bag of food for the weekend for the kids that needed free or reduced lunches. And it's done very sort of that secretly, but it's not obvious that the kids will have a backpack with, you know, names all over it. And it, it's sad with the stories we hear back are the families, uh kids will say, well, my whole family enjoyed that. It's like, that's the food they had. It was, you know, peanut butter sandwiches and tuna fish and that kind of stuff. So yeah. And then they, we also ha- have something called Fresh Bucks where they will get 20% will meet halfway with what they buy on vegetables and fruits. And we raise money for this. Uh, and then, so for example, if they spend $10 we'll have another $10 they can use to spend for- oh,
0: that's great.
1: For, for fruits or vegetables. Yeah. The, the other thing I do is I belong to Soroptimist uh, International. And I don't know if you know what Soroptimist is. I'm not did.
0: that familiar. Mm-hmm.
1: It's an organization of the United Nations actually. And what uh, what it's for is to help women and children all over the world to promote education, uh, better uh, way of living and that kind of thing. So Seroptimists of Friday Harbor has this, uh, it's called trans- cancer treatment transportation fund. And what I do is arrange um, cancer treatment um, ferry tickets for the people that are going to the mainland for cancer treatment, which can get very expensive because if they're going five times a week, that's almost $80 each trip. And, you know, if you're already paying a lot for your treatment, this is an additional burden. So I, and I really love this. This is right up my alley because I get, I don't tell people when I talk to them that I'm a nurse. Um, because I then I'll hear too much, but I, I do, I do uh, try to help them find the best way. Uh, we also have called the Eagles here, which is some of the, the um, older pilots who are retired who fly people for free in yes. their airplanes back and yes. forth. Yeah. So between us, we're able to help people out. Um, it's uh, it's really a great organization. We're having we're having fun with Soraya. that's
0: fantastic. What do you, I, I know, I've taken when I was. Out at Airlift Northwest, what what's the distance that that it takes on the ferry? It it's takes
1: about, well. First, you have to take the ferry to Anacortes, which is about an hour and fifteen. Yeah, and then drive down to Seattle if that's where you're going.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, or up to Bellingham if that's where. Yeah, right. I is. was just
0: thinking of the, um, and that's why the. Air transport is so important. Oh, it's out there. very important. Yeah. Very
1: important.
0: I remember working with the folks out there when I was there. Um so what do you all like to do for fun? What do you and Rec do for fun? I I know you said something about hand gliding and I'm going oh my hang gosh. gliding. <laughs> You're still doing that?
1: <laughs> we haven't done that for a couple of years. Yeah,
0: okay.
1: Actually, we did hang gliding over in uh in Switzerland, in, in Zurich.
2: Yeah. Wow. Over
1: that was that was fabulous. Um we, we like boating. In fact, we're, we've sold all, all our boats in South Carolina. So we're looking now for a, a boat. That's kind of excellent. Boating and and flying are kind of our two things that we do. And, 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 do- and dogs, we love dogs.
0: So motor boat or sailboat or.
1: No, but motor. Yeah. Oh, yeah. We're not
0: sailboat. Rick needs that engine there. I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Fast <laughs> engines. <yes. laughs> so, uh, Thanks so much. I mean, is there anything else that you'd like to talk about that we haven't mentioned? That uh...
1: no, I don't think so, Ed. I've known you for so many years, and I really thank you for this opportunity. I've never, like I said, I've never done a podcast before. Yeah, well,
0: I had started these in 2009, you know, and then I was sort of between jobs, and it was just uh, I felt a fascinating way to to uh Because I, I love interviewing people, I love finding out about mm-hmm. people. But I also tried to, initially. I tried to make it a news program, and then I said no, no, no. I'm I'm not Brian Williams, and news people have to you know talk in these little segments. Yes. And uh, and and then it was already old. So and people really like the interviews. So then that's when I just uh, did the interview portion. But thanks so much for taking the time out of your day. And thanks to Rick for arranging. I noticed oh, sure. people will see that uh, on if you're watching the video podcast, it says Rick, but it's really Eileen talking. about think it. it's Rick's computer
2: uh, <laughs> at,
0: uh, at Island Air at the airport there. And uh, thanks for arranging that because of the, um, to, to get the speed of the internet to be able to do video. So thank you so much.
1: Oh, you're very welcome, Ed. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to this episode of the Air Medical Today podcast. Please come back again and also subscribe to future shows by visiting the website at airmedtoday.com, iTunes, or on the Air Medical Today YouTube channel. Air Medical Today is also on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Pinterest, and Instagram, and you can find the links on the website. Remember, if you would like to be a sponsor or provide feedback, please write to webmaster at airmedtoday.com or call 612-367-6052. A very special thanks to Stanley Reeves of Room Tunes, for providing his song, Track 5, for use as the theme song for the podcast. You can follow Stan on Facebook at facebook.com slash stanley.reeves.39. Take care and have a happy 4th of July. And as always, fly and be safe.